Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to another season of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-4, Mongols and Civil War. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Genghis Khan was the founder of the Mongol Empire, uniting the tribes of Mongolia. The Mongol Empire continues to expand, engulfing much of China, Central Asia, and the Middle East. The Mongols brutally sack and conquer Baghdad in 1258, effectively ending the Abbasid Caliphate. But the Mongol Empire has grown too large and begins to fracture into semi-independent states called Khanates. And with that, let's conclude our discussion of the Mongol Empire. The Mongol Civil War While the Mongols of the Ilkhanate were consolidating their territory in Iraq, Monke Khan, who was the great Khan of the Mongol Empire, was still expanding the empire's borders. He even invaded Vietnam in 1258. That same year, he went to war, once again, against the Southern Song Dynasty of China. We discussed the Southern Song Dynasty in episode 2 of this series. However, Monke Khan died during this campaign while leading an attack on a fortress in what is now the modern Chongqing province in central China. At the time of his death, Monke Khan was only 51 years old and he had not yet chosen a successor. This power vacuum led to the growth of two major factions amongst the Mongols. One faction wanted his brother Kublai Khan to become the next great Khan. The other faction asserted that Monke Khan wanted his other brother, Adik Boke, to be the next great Khan. Each faction also had their powerful supporters. Hulegu Khan, ruler of the Ilkhanate and conqueror of Baghdad, supported Kublai Khan. But Adik Boke was supported by Monke Khan's closest family members. Adikboke also controlled the Mongol capital, Karakoram. The primary difference between these two factions was their view on Mongol culture. Adikboke, based in the capital, was more traditional and wanted to keep with established Mongol culture. Kublai Khan, on the other hand, has spent many years campaigning in China. Over time, he had become greatly influenced by Chinese philosophy and culture. When Kublai Khan heard of Monke Khan's death, he broke off the fighting in China and went to face off against his brother. Beginning in 1260, the two brothers fought several battles over the next four years. Eventually, Kublai Khan gained the upper hand and forced Adik Boke out of the capital. He continued pushing Adikboke deeper and deeper into the wilderness of northern Mongolia. By 1264, Adikboke no longer had the resources to raise an army and finally surrendered to Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan immediately threw his brother into prison, and two years later, Adikboke mysteriously died while in prison. 
But there was still another challenger to Kublai Khan's dominance. This would be Kublai Khan's nephew, Kaidu, who was also the grandson of Ogadai Khan, Genghis Khan's successor. Like Adik Boke, Kaidu also preferred traditional Mongol values. The faction that had previously supported Adik Boke now threw their support behind Kaidu. Kaidu and Kublai Khan went to war in 1268, fighting off and on for the next 30 years. The war finally ended in 1301 when Kaidu was injured in battle and died from those wounds. With Kaidu's death, Kublai Khan became the undisputed ruler of the Mongol Empire. Kublai Khan Even while the fighting between Kublai Khan and Adik Boke and Kublai Khan and Kaidu was going on, the Mongol conquest continued. Kublai Khan, who was always more focused on China, continued his campaign against the Southern Song Dynasty, finally defeating them in 1276. With this victory, the Mongols now controlled all of what is now modern China. Kublai Khan went on to invade Myanmar and Southeast Asia and Sakhalin, which is a large island off the eastern coast of Russia, just north of Japan. Kublai Khan began introducing Chinese culture into the Mongol Empire. In 1271, he renamed his Khanate, or the portion of the Mongol Empire that he directly controlled, to the Daiyuan Dynasty. But then he did something even more controversial. That same year, Kublai Khan moved the Mongol capital from Karakoram in Mongolia to Dadu, which is now part of modern-day Beijing. There was a practical reason for this move, and it wasn't just to satisfy Kublai Khan's love of Chinese culture. He moved the capital because he really needed the support of the Han Chinese, which is the largest ethnic group in China. It would have been very difficult for him to maintain his hold over China if he was trying to rule them from Mongolia. Regardless of how practical his reasoning, however, Kublai Khan's decision to move the capital to China turned a lot of people against him, especially those from the traditional faction that had opposed him for so long. Not long after he moved the capital, a rebellion broke out in Karakoram, which Kublai Khan suppressed with extreme prejudice. Kublai Khan died in 1294 at the age of 78. At the time of his death, the Mongol Empire was at its greatest extent. But it wasn't really a Mongolian Empire anymore because of Kublai Khan's influence. Some might argue it was more of a Chinese empire. After all, its capital was in China. Kublai Khan, though ethnically Mongolian, had completely adopted Chinese culture. His government was styled after the Chinese administrations he conquered. He had even given his dynasty a Chinese name, Daiyuan. 
These changes accelerated the fracturing of the Mongol Empire, which was already taking place due to its immense size. The Mongol Empire Fractures With the death of Kublai Khan, and really even before his death, the Mongol Empire split into four self-governing mini-empires called Khanates. We discussed these semi-independent Khanates earlier, but now they became almost completely independent and operated as sovereign kingdoms. They gave nominal allegiance to Kublai Khan and his successors as the Great Khans, but neither Kublai Khan nor his descendants had any authority beyond the Yuan dynasty based in China. This state of affairs was already in place by 1270. Keep in mind, Baghdad was captured in 1258. This means that within 12 years of the conquest of Baghdad, each Khanate was already essentially an independent mini-empire. Now, there are several reasons for this fracturing. First of all, there was the sheer size of the Mongol Empire. It was simply too big for one man to control all the way from China. Another issue was Kublai Khan's adoption of Chinese culture. The rest of the non-Chinese Mongolian Empire had absolutely no desire to follow him in this process, and they went about doing things in their own way. The Mongol civil wars also served to further divide the empire. Different Khanates supported Kaidu or Arik Boke or Kublai Khan at different points of time. And once Kublai Khan had emerged as the victor, there was just no way for them to come back together as a unified empire. And the final thing that really divided the Mongol Empire was Kublai Khan's decision to move the capital to Beijing. Once he did that, the other Khanates no longer had an emotional or ancestral connection to this new capital. This excerpt from Mongol Empire, a history from beginning to end, sums it up nicely. Part of the reason for this division was Kublai's increasing identification with the Han Chinese and his establishment of a new capital at Beijing. The rebellion by Kaidu was supported at various times by each of the three other Khanates. This ongoing civil war was not finally ended until 1304, when the three other Khanates finally accepted the supremacy of the Yuan dynasty, then under the rule of Kublai Khan's successor, Timur Khan. Nevertheless, this was little more than a nominal arrangement, and each of the four Khanates acted effectively as a separate state. The four Khanates that now made up the Mongol Empire were the Yuan Dynasty, the Ilkhanate, the Golden Horde, and the Chagatai Khanate. Let's go over each one in more detail. The Yuan Dynasty Founded by Kublai Khan, the Yuan Dynasty's capital was in China. 
It would be ruled by Kublai Khan and his descendants, and the Yuan dynasty covered almost all of modern China except for the far western regions. The Yuan dynasty also covered Korea, nearly all of Mongolia, parts of Myanmar, and some parts of eastern Russia. The Ilkhanate Founded by Hulegu Khan, the Ilkhanate's capital was in Iran. It would be ruled by Hulegu Khan and his descendants. The Ilkhanate covered nearly all of Turkmenistan and Iran, most of Afghanistan, and the Balochistan region of Pakistan. The Ilkhanate also covered much of Iraq, parts of Syria, and about three-quarters of Anatolia. The Ilkhanate also included about half of the Caucasus region, including Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, and parts of the Caucasus regions of Russia. The Golden Horde Founded by Batu Khan, the Golden Horde's capital was in southwestern Russia. It would be ruled by Batu Khan and his descendants. The Golden Horde's territory included much of Russia, including the Volga region of Russia, the Ural Mountains, the Northern Black Sea, Western Siberia, and the Caucasus Mountains. There were also several Rus kingdoms that were vassals of the Golden Horde. We discussed these Rus kingdoms briefly in our series on the Vikings. The Golden Horde also included half of Kazakhstan, parts of Uzbekistan, and much of what is now Ukraine. The Chagatai Khanate Founded by Chagatai Khan, the Chagatai Khanate's capital was in Uzbekistan. It would be ruled by Chagatai Khan and his descendants. It covered much of what is now northern Pakistan and Afghanistan and included Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, half of Uzbekistan, about half of Kazakhstan, as well as parts of Russia and western China. The Outcome of Each Khanate Now, let's discuss how each Khanate wound up historically. We'll start with the Yuan Dynasty. Even though they were based in China and adopted Chinese culture, the Mongol rulers of the Yuan Dynasty remained separate from the Chinese subjects. This aloofness from the people led to several uprisings beginning in the 1350s, which collectively became known as the Red Turban Rebellion. The Yuan dynasty was finally toppled in 1368 and replaced by the Ming dynasty. The Mongols who survived this rebellion fled north and established the Northern Yuan dynasty, which covered much of modern Mongolia. The Northern Yuan dynasty continued to be ruled by Genghis Khan's clan, the Borjigin. The Northern Yuan Dynasty lasted until the 1600s when it was finally defeated by the Chinese Jin Dynasty. Now on to the Golden Horde. Weakened by its war with Timur the Lame, the Golden Horde began experiencing internal strife in the 15th century. This caused it to break up into eight smaller khanates. Meanwhile, 
As the Golden Horde was fracturing into smaller Khanates, the Rus kingdoms over in Russia that we mentioned earlier, they were uniting and getting bigger. Before long, the Rus kingdom began to swallow up these smaller Khanates of the Golden Horde. The Rus kingdoms eventually became the Russian Empire. And by the end of the 1700s, all of these Khanates from the former Golden Horde had been conquered by Russia. Now on to the Ilkhanate. The Ilkhanate began fracturing in the early 1300s. To put this into perspective, Hulegu Khan and the Ilkhanate captured Baghdad in 1258. That means the Ilkhanate was falling apart barely 60 years later. By 1345, the Ilkhanate had fractured into dozens of smaller states. Many of these smaller states will later be conquered by Timur or Tamerlane, which we will discuss his story in the next episode, inshallah. The other parts of the Ilkhanate that were not conquered by Timur wound up being conquered by either the Ottoman Empire, based in Anatolia, or the Safavid Empire, based in Persia, or the Mughal Empire, based in Delhi. Finally, we have the Chagatai Khanate. The Chagatai Khanate split into two separate Khanates in the 13th century. The eastern half broke off to become its own state known as Mogulistan. Mogulistan covered the steppes of eastern Kazakhstan, Russia, and Mongolia. The western half of the Chagatai Khanate was more settled and urban. By the 14th century, much of the western Chagatai Khanate had been conquered by Timur. Mogulistan continued on its own as a separate Khanate for about 300 years. By the 1600s, however, parts of Mogulistan had fractured into smaller Khanates, while other parts were absorbed by larger kingdoms. Like all empires and kingdoms, each Khanate eventually disappeared. Some fell apart due to external pressure, while others were torn apart internally. But one of the major reasons for the demise of these individual Khanates was the bubonic plague. We'll discuss this a bit more in a few minutes. Legacy of the Mongols The Mongol Empire was the second largest empire on earth after the British Empire. However, unlike the British Empire, the Mongol Empire was mostly built by one man, Genghis Khan. Today, an estimated 16 million people carry Genghis Khan's DNA. At its height, the Mongol Empire ruled much of the Eastern world from Korea to the Balkans. This dominance gave the Mongols control of the Silk Road, which in turn brought safety and security to trade between Asia and Europe. This stability also allowed the explorer Marco Polo to make his famous journey along the Silk Road in the late 13th century. 
Mongol dominance also allowed new ideas and knowledge to transfer between Europe, China, and all points in between. But there was also a downside. The merchants and travelers who used the Silk Road carried the bubonic plague with them and spread it throughout Europe and Asia. There's no doubt the bubonic plague contributed to the demise of the Mongol Khanates. It's not a coincidence that many of them began experiencing turmoil in the 14th century at the height of the plague. Here's an excerpt from the book, Mongol Empire, A History from Beginning to End. It wasn't just trade and tourists that traveled via the Silk Road and the other efficient and reliable road systems created by the Mongol Empire. When the Black Death first appeared in Crimea, It spread with bewildering and terrifying speed. Ironically, the spread of this disease that did so much to undermine the Mongol Empire and hasten its disintegration was also facilitated by the same efficient road network. With the fall of the Mongol Empire and the fracturing of the individual khanates, traveling along the Silk Road became a dangerous and perilous journey. Silk Road trade continued to decrease as China became more and more isolated from the rest of the world. Mongol culture did not really produce much in the way of art or literature. Nonetheless, the Mongol rulers were patrons of the arts. This patronage led to a flourishing of art in the Muslim regions the Mongols controlled. This may explain why so much more Islamic art comes from places like Iran, Central Asia, and the Indian subcontinent than comes from places like the Middle East. The Mongols also had a major impact on laws and government administration. The Yasa Code, originally established by Genghis Khan himself, was a set of laws used to govern much of the Mongol Empire. Many later empires would adopt these laws into their own legal code. For example, the Russian Empire adopted much of the legal code of the Golden Horde. Both the Persian states and the Ottoman Empire borrowed from the laws of the Ilkhanate. And when the Mughals came around, they also utilized parts of the Mongol administration and legal structure. Once again, I want to read from Mongol Empire, A History from Beginning to End. The code applied to virtually every aspect of everyday life. It covered everything from not putting one's hands into drinking water, but instead using a cup, all the way up to obeying the orders of the leader. For a frightening list of offenses, the punishment was death. This included failing to do one's duty in a community hunt, not answering a summons from the Khan, adultery, and sodomy, all the way down to a soldier who failed to pick up an item dropped by the man in front. For most people, death took the form of beheading, though very senior members of a tribe might instead be put to death by having their backs broken, which avoided the spilling of blood, which was thought to be shameful. This code was also notable for defining tax exemptions for certain classes of workers who were deemed of particular value to the community at large, including doctors, 
scholars, lawyers, and religious practitioners. This will conclude our discussion of the Mongol Empire. In the next episode, we will discuss another Mongol conqueror who wanted to emulate Genghis Khan, Timur the Lame, also known as Tamerlane. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sirosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 4. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Muhalab ibn Abi Sufra dies in Khurasan in 82 AH. His son, Yazid ibn Muhalab, becomes governor of Khurasan. After 100 days of fighting, the Umayyads finally defeat the Peacock army in 83 AH. Ibn al-Ash'ath and the remnants of the Peacock army flee towards Persia and Afghanistan. And with that, let's continue our story of the Peacock army. So now Hajjaj ibn Yusuf has regained control of Kufa. He remained there for about a month to restore order and also to ensure the Syrian soldiers under his command did not abuse or retaliate against the Iraqis. The Peacock army, which has now been defeated, splintered into several different parts. A large portion of it, however, was traveling with Ibn al-Ashath. As we mentioned in the last episode, after the battle was over, he ran back into Kufa to see his family, grab some supplies, say, give his goodbyes to his family, and then he went on. After leaving Kufa, he went on to Basra, where hundreds of people joined him. These were perhaps those who had rebelled against 
um, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf or maybe those who just didn't like Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and still supported ibn Ashad even though he had already lost or maybe they were they had left Hajjaj ibn Yusuf or rebelled against Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and they had no choice but to continue on with ibn Ashad because Hajjaj ibn Yusuf would almost certainly punish them once he got back to Basra. Either way, Ibn Ashad was able to leave Basra with thousands of soldiers and people still with him. Now there was another commander within the Peacock army, a man named Muhammad ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. And you can tell from the name, he was one of the sons of the great companion Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, anhu. So Muhammad ibn Sa'ad, that's what we're going to call him, Muhammad ibn Sa'ad, he captured the city of Madain while all of the confusion was happening around Kufa with the defeat of the Peacock army and Hajjaj ibn Yusuf trying to take over again. Muhammad ibn Sa'ad uses opportunity to capture Madain. And we mentioned Madain in the previous series on the Umayyads and also in previous uh, series before. Madain was the... Arabic word for the former Sassanid or Persian capital, Tessifan. And Madain is actually the plural of the word Medina, meaning city, because Madain was like several cities in one big city. So Madain is kind of close to Baghdad, not really Baghdad, but maybe about 20, 30 miles away from Baghdad, something like that. But Madain is is uh, the former capital of the Sassanid Persian Empire that the Muslims captured during the early stages of the uh, Four Righteous Caliphs, during the time of um, Abu Bakr and Omar, radiallahu anhum. And actually, I was wrong. Madain is about 12 miles south of modern Baghdad and about 70 miles northeast of Kufa. Anyway, so Muhammad ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, he captured Madain, and when Hajjaj ibn Yusuf learns that one of the segments or portions of the Peacock army had taken Madain, he takes his army and he goes towards Madain. Muhammad ibn Sa'ad knows he can't stand against Hajjaj, so he abandons Madain and heads towards Basra in order to join up with Ibn al-Ashath. Well, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he goes ahead and follows him on down to Basra. Eventually, the two armies meet in, meet to fight in Shaban 83AH. So now two months had passed since the defeat of the Peacock army at Kufa. Once again, the Umayyads on one side and the Peacock army or the remains of the Peacock army on the other side. You have Ibn Ashath and the remains of his soldiers, as well as Muhammad Ibn Sa'ad and the soldiers that he used to briefly capture Madain. Once again, Ibn Ashath and his side, they dig trenches, really both sides dug trenches. Ibn Ashath took it a step further and he flooded his right flank using a nearby river so that the Umayyads could only attack him from one direction. And eventually the two sides wound up fighting again for about two weeks. And once again, they were locked in a stalemate. The Peacock army, even though they had been defeated, was still a very strong, experienced and large army. Their defeat at Kufa did not completely annihilate them. As you'll see, they're going to linger on for quite a while as we go through this story. 